Back at the mic for one last time, guys. Yep, I'm going to say last is, one. Yep, our very last one. Who can believe that we even got here? Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible when you think what we were like at the beginning of the year. Well, I have to say, I knew very little bit about podcasts. I'm a bit of a latecomer to the whole podcasting scene. And as far as making a podcast, that was pretty terrifying. Yeah. I was definitely, <laughs> definitely a podcast fan, but I think it shocked me how different it was trying to put one together, especially coming from, you know, plucked out a morning report and then, all right, I you've know. got 20 minutes to play with and you go, what do I do with that? Yeah, <laughs> and I think when we, we initially started, because we come from the quick soundbite um, world, it was quite, it was scary thinking that we could extend these interviews out to... 20 minutes. I mean, at the beginning, I think we were cutting them down to 11, going, oh, that's that's enough. That is just <laughs> yeah. that's long enough. Nobody listen for longer than 12 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. you to change your mind from eliminating all detail to going, oh, the point is kind of the detail. <laughs> yeah, hence the detail. But the luxury of being able to experiment and the freedom to choose the topics that we wanted to do, it's, it's, a, it's a journalist's dream, really, isn't it? And you want to introduce yourself? Oh, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. <laughs> oh, kia ora. I'm Alex Ashton. And I'm Alexia Russell, Details Producer. And this is the last of our podcasts for the year. Yeah. Today we're going to have a look back at some of our favourite episodes, give you a couple of little updates and maybe a little peek behind the scenes. Who doesn't love a top 10? Well, we're going to dial it up to 11. So in no particular order, here we go. Are you ready? My husband was renovating the house before we moved in and turned around and had a a tour group behind him inside the house. Inside the house? Inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) It was. I mean, imagine tourists coming into your house. And it's not even as if it's the steepest street in the world now. It's um, We're talking about Baldwin Street here in Dunedin. And that was a podcast about all the tourism hotspots around the world, kind of going into meltdown. Uh, and that woman that we spoke to was talking about the invasion of unwanted visitors into her home. And it was kind of inspired by a book by Elizabeth Becker about over-tourism. And when I talked to her, she was kind of stroppy. But, you know, I guess that's what makes good listening. No, I just told you who was making money. Travel agents from other places. All tourists do not pay their way. All tourists do not enrich a place. And that's one of the first things I think all destinations, including New Zealand, should figure out. How much are you subsidising these tourists to come and make your life miserable? I mean, it's kind of gold when you get someone speaking to you like that. You just have to realise that it's not personal. And this is a big issue. It was one of our biggest podcasts in terms of listeners as well. So something that everyone's having a think about. You want to go on the holiday of a lifetime. You don't want to be crammed into tiny spaces with hundreds of other people. It's interesting, though, because something like Baldwin Street... You hear about these tourist hotspots and they're in your in your backyard, but Baldwin Street was literally in her backyard. Young people have been trying for years and years and years to get people to listen to their experiences, stories about their experience and what life is like. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. Okay, boomer. Uh, current political and they are just now 
sick of their shit. So this one I found really fun to put together. It was, as you would have heard in the clip there, this came from Chloe Swarbrick's OK Boomer retort in Parliament. And that just set off or reset off this generational divide that's been happening for a few years. But what I find really interesting about this whole thing is it sort of turns it on its head because for years and years and years it's been millennials. And as a millennial, I have felt that. So it was interesting to see the the tide turn a little bit and what happened when the conversation turned from damn millennial to okay boomer interesting as well because neil curtis who was the the person who was interviewed for that podcast he was right on the border of the gen x boomer cutoff but he really he, he wasn't very um supportive of his boomer boomer friends and what his he was saying group. Silver Ferns are netball world champions once again after a 16-year drought. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, how their coach, Noling Taurua, has turned them from duds to darlings. Oh, I remember that. It was the middle of the night, and that was so exciting. I remember coming into the office that day on such a high and thinking, we really have to do something on Noling Taurua. I mean... The thing was, what made her so special? How did she manage to turn around the Silver Ferns? And luckily, we got in touch with uh, Ravinda Hunia, who was RNZ's sports reporter over there in the UK. And she was happy to talk to us, even though it was the middle of the night. I think she's probably still on a high, as we all were. And you still grin hearing that little bit of commentary. How has she done it, Ravinda? I mean, in 11 months, she's turned them around. Yeah, I asked her this question post-match and she said it was exactly that. It was the 11 months. Like, that's the amount of time that it needed to take to not only uh, build a, a team that is capable and bring back these veterans like she did, it was to rebuild a culture not just within the team but within the organisation. So she's had to pull all four corners of Netball New Zealand and get everybody on the same page and all moving together. You know, sometimes you wouldn't believe it, but that was actually the only World Cup that New Zealand won this year. And yet, from my point of view, it was so much more low-key compared with the Rugby World Cup. And the cricket, which was, of course, on such a knife edge. Without a doubt, though, this has become a bigger symbol for a lot of people. For Māori, they are against the housing developments that don't even whakapapa to that whenua. This has become an issue that represents what's happened to Māori around the country. That land is always off the table, you know, it's never part of your treaty settlement because it's in private ownership. However, this is land, and you've got proof, most iwi and hapu have written proof to say this is confiscated land. The thing with Ihumatau was it was bubbling away for quite a while and we were discussing the fact that we needed to do something about it. But and, and there were so many components to mm. the story, weren't there? I feel like this is one actually that we really, all four of us at the time, pulled together and worked really hard on with a really good result. Um, Alex, you did an interview. Yeah, I went out to go see David Vert. He's sort of the the go-to historian on all things Ihumatau about the historical context of what it used to be. And it was actually really eye-opening for me to learn about that because um, it's not something that's ever come 
come across my your radar. My radar, no. We kind of made a plan on the Friday, didn't we? And we thought, well, this is this is not going to go away at the weekend. I mean, it was just like more busloads of people were coming to Ihimatau in South Auckland. And so we, we made a plan for what we'd do, but we weren't going to do it until the Monday morning. Because the situation was turning over so quickly yeah. that if we left it, and you this know, this was kind changed. of peak confusion, I think, for people as well, because it was just starting to happen, and it was the, the presence there was getting getting really really big. But I, I kind of use my dad as a bit of a barometer here because he sort of lets me know. But that was one where he said I didn't actually quite understand the background, and after listening to that, he did because we had those different things covered off but with Shannon and with yeah. David. And we were lucky to have Shannon because I think we said to her, you know, she needs to explain it. And Shannon was great, I thought, because she spoke from the heart about, you know, kind of explaining as a Māori woman about why something like this is so important. At the airport, it was packed with Muslims. <laughs> we literally had to switch to a bigger plane because they said last minute there was a bigger uptake of people because that was when the second lot of burials were announced. So we were heading down there and there were many Muslims, maybe like 90% of the plane was Muslims. And it was weird. I'm not used to being <laughs> surrounded by that many Muslims in such a confined space. Because, you know, on a plane usually there's like a couple of Muslims here, a couple of Muslims there, and you say hi to each other, like, hello, salam alaikum. But now it's kind of like, oh, 90% of the plane is Muslim. Should I say hi to everyone? (laughs) That's uh, Isra Imhal, and she's a digital journalist for RNZ. And she's talking here about her flight to Christchurch soon after the mosque attacks. And I wanted to talk to... Isra, because you don't hear Isra speak very much. She's a digital journalist, so she's not on the radio. But she's a very interesting woman, and um, I wanted to hear her perspective on things because I think she might have been the only uh, Muslim journalist there. And uh, I, I felt it was almost a privilege, actually, to get her to sit down and talk to us. She was quite reluctant initially, so it took some persuading. And this year, Christchurch was intertwined with a lot of our podcasts. I mean, we didn't specifically do one on the March 15 events, but those shootings lead to discussions about security, hate speech, online behaviour. They've really had that horrible tragedy has really threaded its way through everything in New Zealand this year. Yeah, even the Crusaders rugby team, we did one on that back back then. That was off that. Obviously, now we know that they didn't go through with the the whole change. They changed the branding, but they've kept the Crusaders' name. But yeah, gosh, it's interesting to think how much that did shape this whole year. Big law changes. Yeah, Yeah. the, the Christchurch call, we looked at that. It really has changed our nation too. I'm quite interested in the serotonin 2A receptor. It's quite an interesting receptor. When LSD hits the serotonin receptor, it actually causes the serotonin receptor to actually change its structure and behave in a very unusual way. So I found this one and I was really keen to do it because I've heard about microdosing and it's kind of been floating around in BuzzFeed articles and stuff for a few years, but this was the first time that I saw it really specifically brought up in a New Zealand context. Um, and so, and I'd, I'd heard a couple of interviews that Suresh had done, uh, Suresh being the, the scientist that's running it. And it was just fascinating for me to learn about what LSD 
originally was or how it was originally seen before, in Suresh's words, the hippie movement took over it. And it just, I don't know, I find this intersection of science and our cultural taboos and the progress that we could still make in using different things for different purposes if we're just kind of a bit less... I don't know, what's the word, traditional about things? There are, there are, there are options out there. Yeah, if we're more open-minded. Yeah, that's it. And, I mean, it's just a study he wants to do. I actually texted him a couple of days ago just to see how things were going. So when we left him, uh, he was looking for uh, approval, so to be able to do the study, and then money was the next thing. Uh, they have the approval, so they've got the green light to do it, the eth- ethical approval, and now it's just a, a matter of finding money because the point he was making was that you're making you have to make the LSD for this trial to work, but they're making it on such a small scale that it's going to be really expensive because you have to go to a drug producer who don't often make things in batches of six. Yeah, it's under laboratory <laughs> conditions too, isn't it? Yeah. You can't just like whip it off the street. Okay, and this next one was interesting because we were actually approached by journalists uh, Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham from Stuff Circuit And they were actually tipping us off about a big investigation that was going to be breaking news uh, on a Sunday, actually, in the Sunday Star Times. And they were tipping us off in advance if we promised to keep it under wraps. I remember having that conversation with the head of the United Nations Mine Action Service in Kabul that afternoon when he went through the database. What kind of incidents was he talking about? He was just... Going through, you know, oh, here's a shepherd who was who uh, has been injured picking up a, a device. Here's a, a a child who's been playing with a device and it's gone off. Oh, and here's April 2014, seven children dead. And I just remember being shocked. And that, that of course, was about the number of people, children included, who died from unexploded ordnance on... New Zealand firing range in Afghanistan. Mm, crikey. Imagine hearing that eh, on the phone just being casually rattled down to you by your source. Seven children. And we finished that podcast with this from Paula Penfold. The question is now, why are we still talking about it? I mean, these complaints mm-hmm. were made in 2013 and, and since. So why has it taken six years for this to happen? It's, it still has not been cleared. They have the money set aside, but they haven't done anything with it. And, of course, a short time after that, the Defence Force announced it had agreed a deal to clear unexploded ordnance in Afghanistan. And that was after those revelations. And, I mean, it took, sort of took a few days for them to, well, for the for the politicians really to respond to it properly, but it's a real um, example of what uh, what impact journalists can have and good investigative journalism. So we're just outside the main hospital here in Apia at the moment, and in front of me I can see uh, another tent that is being set up basically in the car park of the hospital, and this tent is being set up as extra capacity. I spoke to an ICU specialist from Auckland this morning and it was really tragic speaking to him. He just said he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He's still seeing multiple children dying in front of him every single day. So that's News Hub's Michael Mora. He's their Pacific correspondent. And that, he was in Apia then when I spoke to him, but prior to that he'd come into the RNZ studios, so that was before he went back. 
of course, that is about the, the Samoa measles crisis. That's, I, gu- I guess it's still unfolding, really. They're talking about maybe it's slowing, but oh, that many deaths in that small of a population, it's got to hit your heart, right? Yeah, and that was another interesting one that felt like it was not ignored, but it didn't get a lot of attention for quite a while. And then all of a sudden it felt like, you know, you think you think if this happened in New Zealand at that scale, it would be huge. And yet it took quite a few days really for, I guess, the media and the people, you know, mm. who could make decisions to respond to it. I'm Deborah Marshall and I'm the Chief Coroner for New Zealand. When you tell people you're a coroner, what do people think you do? <laughs> um, some people have no idea. Some people think I'm a pathologist, so they say things like, how does a small person like you cut up bodies? And I'm like, no, that's a pathologist, not a coroner. So there is a lot of confusion out there, I think, about what we do. And I have to be honest, I was actually one of those people that was confused about what a coroner does. And I actually thought they were a pathologist as well for a long time. Um, Yeah, I've just, I've never known, I've written how many stories saying something's been referred to the coroner or the coroner's recommending something or the coroner is angry at someone for not doing something. And I've never thought about what a coroner does. So really amazing opportunity to have the top coroner come in and explain that. And also she was just really open. Like I was really... She was. Yeah, Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised by what she was willing to, how much she was willing to say about the job and the challenges and the frustrations there's not that many coroners. I was amazed about how few coroners there are in New Zealand and the number of cases that they have to do. Yes, there's up to 300 extra cases. Uh, The the backlog, each coroner, they're looking at 300 cases. And there was some some money put aside in in the budget to bring in temporary coroners. So they're going to see if that makes a difference and then maybe there's a case for, for raising that statutory cap. It struck me too that they have so much power in that the... Police, you know, at Fakari said they're, we're investigating this for the coroner, and the coroner can ask people for reports, and they can demand that someone talks to them. But yeah, their recommendations carry a lot of moral weight, perhaps, but no legal weight. Today, the theatre is still and silent. So it's like a spooky being in the building at this stage of its life. It is. It's still a heartbeat there, but. Um... Yeah. Not exactly active. That was George Farrant. He's kind of like the caretaker of St James Theatre and that's this beautiful old theatre right in the centre of Auckland. Well, it's beautiful on the inside. On the outside, it's this just terrible, forgotten, shabby old building. He would be one of the country's foremost experts in historic places and he's been there, you know, for decades Finally, he was retiring. But yeah, the love that he had for that theatre really shone through when you walked through with him, didn't it? Oh, yeah. He's passionate in, in a sort of quiet uh, kind of way. But he's got stories to tell about every every little corner every of corner it. Every corner of it. Yeah. <laughs> he's got that kind of really inimitable humour. And we can say it's Kiwi humour and we can pretend to own it and to own him, but it's actually very Taika humour. And the fact of the matter is the rest of the world is ready for it. And he made it work on the Marvel Universe and, um, in my opinion, has absolutely made it work with Jojo Rabbit. 
our number 11, so we're breaking the rules here, but we ha- we couldn't do a top 10 without including Taika Waititi, and that was TV3's Kate Roger. Again, we were lucky enough that she was happy to talk to us at 2 in the morning <laughs> from Toronto just after the premiere of Jojo Rabbit. And she, I was just giggling throughout the entire interview with Kate. He makes me cry every time. I had a gut full of that eventually. <laughs> I was a sobbing mess at the end of Jojo, and he made me cry in the interview today as well. So I'm sick of Tyke making me cry. But he has that way, and maybe for me, you know, comedy is my gateway drug into accessing my stone-cold reviewer's heart. You're giggling in that one. <laughs> I know. She's, um, she's fabulous, Kate I, Rogers. I loved her tale that she was taking a photo in, on a Toronto street at 8 in the morning of the Jojo Rabbit poster, and who should drive by winding down the window, hanging out the window and yelling at her, but Tyka. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that about wraps it up for 2019. Thanks to everyone who helped us shed some light on the news of the day in our podcast this year, including journalists from all over the country and a multitude of news organisations. We couldn't have done this without huge support from both RNZ and Newsroom, or without NZ On Air's Innovation Fund. Special thanks to our executive producer, Mark Jennings, and RNZ's head of podcasts, Tim Watkin, and our amazing team of sound engineers, Jeremy Ansel, Rangi Poek, Adrian Holley, Jeremy Veal, and Blair Stagpole. My special thanks to, to these two amazing broadcasters and journalists, Sharon Brett Kelly and Alex Ashton. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. Sharon and I will be back next year, but Alex, sadly, for us, is taking off on a big overseas adventure. You will be missed. Well, thanks, Alexia. <laughs> Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Kere Mahete. Ka kite.